Welcome to another episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast, where we discuss common fulfillment operations challenges and the know-how to fix them. Our guest today is Giles Taylor, president of Trans Solutions, which advises businesses on successful freight transportation programs, including parcel management. Giles began his career as a merchant marine officer and then moved to the corporate side where he held engineering and operations positions with a range of shippers from defense contractors to retailers. He began his consulting company, Trans Solutions, in 1998 and over the last 25 years has saved clients more than $450 million. Giles, welcome to the podcast. It's a genuine pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I, it's one that I've looked forward to for some time. And it seems like no conversation can begin without using or introducing Amazon to the conversation. It's maybe a good place to start, if you don't mind. But Amazon seems to set the bar quite high as it relates to just shipment speed in our industry. And I'm curious what your view is. Do brands really require that type of service from your perspective? Yeah, I'm going to go back quite a ways in my career when I was a an engineer and also as an operator in charge of transportation, we used to create a shipping and handling rate. And oftentimes it was on money spent, which is a difficult conversion sometimes. But we had to do that and justify that in the end of the day, make some money on that. And then, of course, Amazon came around and turned that all upside down, giving away free shipping. And I think a lot of that had to do with the cheap money that was out there. If you can borrow money at one or 2%, you can get away with a lot of generosity in that respect. But I, what I would say is, and this is probably going to be very controversial, but I genuinely believe e-tailers should test that, see what they're losing or making on their freight. It's just healthy, basic economics, right? Maybe you don't make a change, but at least you know what you're giving away there. If you order next day and there's no extra charge, why wouldn't you do it? That's yeah. what we've all become accustomed to with Amazon's change and other companies following it. But you can really see that tide is changing a bit. Even with Amazon, for example, they now offer a slight credit. If you order three items and you get them all in the same day, right? It's not much money, like $1.99 or $2.99. But what the heck, I don't need this stuff right away and it's greener. So I feel better about that. So I think the cost of money has gone up precipitously and I think they're looking at money and revenue differently as a result of that. So I think everybody is in that mindset. It's a big piece of your cost, really dips into your gross margin. So I think you need to be diligent about how much are you paying, and at least starting at that point, and then uh, going from there, and maybe you make some changes. I think people are more willing to take slower service, but if you offer next day, who's not going to take it? Do you, do you think, Giles, that Amazon is purposely keeping those service levels high and forcing the, the other carriers to charge more in order to keep consistent with them? I think they started that way for sure. And it's like the lost leader here. I'm going to give away crate and then you're going to order from me. I'm going to make things very convenient. But I even see they're struggling with that. They're trying to make some money on there or lose less money on that is another way of putting it. You can also have the argument that are they really losing money or are they just baking it into the rate, the cost of the goods, and the sale of the goods? But I think they are. I see it. I order from Amazon and other 
e-tailers and I can see the other e-tailers are more diligent about that. There might be a restocking fee on more things and Amazon even has, uh, you can't return things. Uh, so I think I would say if I compared this to before the pandemic to today, much more attention to SNH. You obviously have an engineering background and, and so I'm sure you've got a lot of perspective on just labor management as well, but it used to be where labor costs were maybe the largest expense on a P&L. It, sure, it certainly is shipping and handling today. Do you have a, a view on whether brands are just simply paying more uh, than they should today uh, for shipping and handling? Every year, it's 5.9 or 6.9% general rate increases as an average, yeah. but the reality is most are paying double digit, right? With accessorials and extended delivery surcharges and such. If you're asking, is UPS and FedEx feeling the pressure? Absolutely not. When's the last time you got a bad report from them on Wall Street? Mm-hmm. They, they just, albeit FedEx really performed poorly during the pandemic. And I still don't think they've recovered, but they're coming back nicely now. If you look at their numbers, there's a lot of money out there. Who gets a 6.9% increase anywhere, right? Nobody gets that. So they're not suffering at all. We're suffering for it. And I think there's things that we can do to be smarter about how we ship that don't directly affect the price. So you can go negotiate a price and that's one thing, but there's other things you can do to streamline your process and, and try to save money that way. For an example, what are some of the, the things that brands or customers should be doing to, to bring down their shipping and handling expenses? I think just look at kind of the pieces that feed the, to the shipping, right? There's inventory, there's packaging, like how many people get big box with a lot of peanuts in it and there's a little tiny thing in it? It really, I think, pisses off the general public. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, it was hard to get fiber. So that was part of the reason for that. But I think maybe some companies needed to spend a little bit more attention on the inventory movement of that product and those products and maybe change the way they do it because there's an obvious way to save some money. Packaging is not cheap. And, and it's uh, on a schedule, so it goes up and down. Another way would be looking at your back back office. How are you generating your invoices? How are you paying your carriers? Uh, what is the back office cost to make all this happen? Things behind the curtain that nobody ever knows about. What can I do there to streamline processes? Data management. Everybody is selling data management. You've got a couple of nice tools out there like Tableau and Power BI, but it all comes down to the data. So if you have bad data in that SQL database, if you will, it's not going to give you anything. You're going to give you bad data. So spend time on that. One of the, probably the best thing to do, and you probably know this firsthand, Chad, is make sure that your skew unit measure and weights are correct. The eaches, the cases, the inner cases, right? Because you're just going to calculate something wrong if it's not. I know warehouse operators really are frustrated by, by that. So I know that you guys must be as well, but spend some time, get a cubist gamut in, in there for a couple of weeks and spend a little bit of money. But the benefit of TMSs and WMSs and sophisticated uh, algorithms will only benefit if you have good information. Those are some of the things that you can do other than just get a better price on, on freight. And there's always that too. Yeah, we're, we're, we're under currently, we're, we're taking a hard look at validating DIMs and weights in the systems that maybe vendors have passed on incorrectly. And 
There right. wasn't may, maybe a control providing that back to customers to let them know that, hey, we're receiving some bad data. And as a result of that, we're using bad cartonization. And because of that, you're spending more in, in, in transportation and shipping costs than you should simply because, you know, something was entered incorrectly uh, from a vendor uh, as an example in the system. Do you, so interesting take, because a lot of that, uh, a lot of those examples, uh, Giles, that you just referenced aren't necessarily looking even at the shipping, the, the, the direct shipping costs, but more at the indirect, the back office, the, the dims, the weights, the cartonization, the packaging. So things that we can control that regardless of what the carrier passes on to us. But what about the carrier expenses? How do you mitigate some of those costs? Yeah, so, like accessorials. So you, I think your initial question was, what kind of things can you do to mitigate the cost of shipping? Yeah. So there's, there's material costs, right? With packaging and things like that. And there's process changes. You can do that with, there's routing guides or shipping uh, schedules that you want to go publish with your customers. The REITs are, are a whole different thing. We have a free paper on our website called five things uh, carriers don't want you to know about their rate, year rates. Number one is that don't think because you have bigger spend, you're going to get better pricing. Uh, we just see time and time again where a smaller shipper spend in the same space has got better pricing than the bigger company. Like, how does that happen if you believe in that theory? FedEx and UPS are smart companies. They're very smart companies. They have smart people working for them and they know how to work a number. You have an advantage in as a 3PL in that you are able to buy a lot of different freight, not just one freight, but a lot of different freight. So UPS, FedEx, maybe regional parcel carriers, regional LTL carriers with really good minis and things like that. You're doing the same thing, right? You're saying, hey, I need to have a package that fits my customers and my customers aren't all the same. So some might have heavier products, some might have lighter products, and some might be a mix of LTL mini and underweight and, and heavy packages and other. So you have to have a variety of rates to be competitive out there. And you're able to do that because you have the kind of volume that you do. So, for example, say you had $50 million at spend that you manage. How much of that is with UPS and FedEx? How much of it is it with OnTrack and LaserShip or Speedy or somebody like that? You don't tie your hands with that spend issue. You, you have the bigger product to bring to the market. You have variety. And I think the variety can drive down that price. You're picking the right carrier, the right service. For the I'm curious, Charles, what are some of the, uh, on the paper, the five things that the parcel carriers don't want you to know? I guess one is uh, demystifying that to that comment about large spend doesn't necessarily equal large discounts. I, I believe, by the way, or it's been my experience that it's like sometimes buying a car at the end of the month, it's a better time to buy the car than say in the beginning of the month. But timing matters when you're negotiating with carriers, the time of the year, the time that they, you know, if things are a good time or a bad time, if they're prioritizing yes. margin. So I think it, a, a lot of it depends just like your own company. When you extend rates, it, how does it fit into your, to your uh, portfolio at that time? I think that's one of the reasons why rates aren't equal across the board, you know, consistently based on spend. Oh, you have a lot of experience in negotiating with parcel carriers, right? One thing we find out, there is a transportation or purchasing department responsible for securing that pricing, right? And usually we find either the 
shipping manager, if you will, that's negotiating those rates really knows parcel or doesn't know parcel or knows all the other stuff, ocean, air, LTL, truckload. So they're at a deficit, right? But you don't have that because you ha- you see both sides of that, right? You, you can't afford to not have that. One of the five things shippers don't want you to know is that the number one, the sales rep is going to get you the rates. That's couldn't be farther from the truth. They're not going to, they're going to bring your offer or your counter to their pricing division. They're going to make your rates. Right. Also, they'll tell you to your face, these are the best rates I've ever seen. And they're not lying, right? Because they haven't seen a lot of rates. You see your customers' rates, what they have before they came to you, and then you can compare them to your own. So you have that. That's one of the great things with the 3PL is that they have that visibility on pricing, on benchmarking that the average shipper doesn't have. They just know their rates, right? Maybe they negotiated it three years ago. That's pretty narrow window of rates when you think about it. When you're looking at hundreds and multiple hundreds of different kind of rates. It's a huge advantage in parcel. Yeah, it's a great point. You're competing against yourself effectively. You don't know what else exists. Exactly. You don't know what you got until you don't have it, right? You know, yeah, I think I see that all the time. Interesting. What, what's your take on regionals? Are they been evolving over the last few years? Has the regional momentum stalled at all, in your opinion? Um, or is it just ta- still taken off? So I've been in this business so long ago, I used to work with RPS, which of course FedEx bought to create their ground product. Uh, And of course, Airborne back in the early 2000s, everybody wants somebody to be able to compete with UPS and FedEx. And and we had this kind of fantasy wish that Amazon was going to be that, but they're not. They only do it for themselves, right? They're not going to, they don't, they're not in the parcel business of shipping. Any kind of competition is better kind of competition. Now, there's two big players out there, LaserShip and OnTrack, and then LaserShip ship bought OnTrack, so it's pretty big. They got the East Coast and the West Coast, but they don't cover all 66,000 five-digit zip codes in this country. And who knows how good that integration is? I mean, FedEx is still struggling with TT&E's integration. That was, what, three years ago? It's a long struggle to get that done. However, and here's again, and, and it's going to sound like I'm like promoting we're here, but here's another case where you have multiple warehouses so that you can take advantage of those regional carriers. You have a, if you're in the Midwest around Chicago, Speedy's a good choice. If you don't have high urgent product, if your DC's up there, you can take advantage of that. But if your DC's in California, you really can't, right? You can use OnTrack, a GSC or somebody else like that. But yeah, where you can take advantage of that, where you can bring leverage in the negotiation table do it. Even if you give them a little bit. Sometimes it, I remember RPS, I got a call from the RPS rep that was roadway package services. <laughs> he said, he came in and he said to me, we don't want all the freight. We just bought a little bit of freight, right? <laughs> and I go, okay, what's a little bit of freight? He goes, the commercial stuff. We want the heavy commercial stuff. So he's really the profitable stuff. But why not, right? You, I think, as I said before, you if you have a wide uh, choice of carriers and services, use it. That's going to get you, that's what an NTMS does, right? At rate shops for service and price. And that might land on speedy in some cases. And that's, it has a better rate or a better service than UPS or FedEx. Yeah. Everybody's got a niche, right? Whether it's 10 pounds and above or the under the pound or certain zip codes on, on the regionals. 
So that, I guess that that's a good segue in, into maybe answering this already. Maybe we, we, we just did, but so are you a, a believer in being more diversified across carriers as opposed to yes. just being married to one provider and leveraging, maximizing that relationship? So it got back to the number one issue of five things the carriers don't want you to know and rates, right? Give us all the business, right? So FedEx, so we're going to give you this earned discount that's going to get you, what, another half a percent, quarter percent, maybe it's a whole percent to give me another million dollars, right? Is that really worth it? And how do they know? How do they know you have that million to give, right? You gave it to them. Don't give it to them. You have to play that in the negotiation table, right? Always have a leverage. And then I know we've run across people been doing this for a long time, shippers, and they just, that's their policy. We're always going to have two, two carriers. We're going to use FedEx and UPS. And they don't necessarily suffer in pricing because of that. You have to be strategic about that and clever. But you can, and we always recommend it as dual source, period. Dual yeah. source. Keep the other one. It's a whole different thing to negotiate with these carriers when they ha- have handled your freight than when they haven't. It's a whole big suspicious thing. Cap- shippers don't trust carriers. Carriers don't trust shippers. It's the same thing with FedEx and UPS. They haven't had your freight, so they're going to be conservative unless for some reason you fit into a nice little bucket they want, like make device or camera or something mm-hmm. like that everybody wants. It's much easier to negotiate with somebody on genuine pricing if they handled your freight. Now, if you have bad freight, that could be problematic, but typically it's good freight. I also think, Giles, like a lot of, depending on where you are in the maturity process of, of your contract, if you're in year two, three, four, or if it's like on a renewal and you're several years into it, by default, if the carriers keep increasing your rates by, at the top of the conversation, 7.9% or plus assessors, let's just say it's 8, 9%. By, by two years from now, if you didn't add any new business to your portfolio, just by default, your spend is up 15, 20% because the rates have increased that amount. I feel like you've got flexibility in the contract against those commitments to do something like you're talking about by dual sourcing or doing more with others. You're giving back what you negotiated two years ago through the 5.9 or 6.9 GRI. Yeah, it's incredible. And then not to mention other in- abnormal increases they put on accessorials. And of course, the 6.9 is not across the board. It usually hits the lighter weight stuff more so than the heavier weight stuff. And if you're a late shipper, you're going to pay even more than that 6.9% most likely. We have a project right now. We negotiated the rate two years ago in, um, in the middle of COVID. And of course, it was difficult getting international air freight that, you know, the prices were sky yeah. high. So we knew going in that we're not going to do as well on the international as we did on the domestic. Right. And so we focused on the domestic and what we could. But now it's totally changed. With mm-hmm. three year contract or two years into it, we're opening it up because it's just fair. Right. We gave them the money when they needed it. Now we want it back because then their margin is way higher than it was back then. So we opened up the contract. We're renegotiating them. Yeah. It's, it's almost like uh, the need to, to have almost like a, Elon Musk dynamic pricing for a Tesla car. It's or in the old days on, on LTL yeah. or current days, not old days, but supply and demand of filling fill those holes where the carriers need your volume. Interesting. You, so it, you, you do kind of like the, 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 the unit thing, right? Get the Cuba scan in there. That's not a one and done. That's ongoing. 
it's just you know, the ongoing is a much smaller job than the, let's get this fixed. But you have to stay on top of it. Always look at what's going on in the market. What's your rate doing? Maybe your freight profile change, right? Maybe you're starting to ship more international than you had before. It's always attractive stuff. There's usually a lot of room to, to get money there, two things. So always be on top of that. And don't be afraid to open up the contract. What is What do you find to be a good length of contract? Was three years a good standard to be signed up for with a carrier? Do you like them longer or shorter based on all the changes? Um, it depends on, I think, the growth of the company. It has a lot to do with it. We did a project for, I can't give you their name, but let's say one of those food companies, like you deliver food to your house. They were growing so fast. We were, we were literally looking at the rate every three months and renegotiating. Now, of course, Civic has an evergreen contract usually, so it's always open. They, they, and they do that purposely so they can get out of it. So mm-hmm. if they can do that, then why can't the shipper do that? So I yeah, think three years, if, if it's stable, you've been doing this for a while, it's okay, but don't be afraid to open it up if things change. What would you tell somebody listening right now? Here's the low-hanging fruit. Here's one thing you could go do right now to try to mitigate some of that shipping cost. What, what would be the one thing you would tell somebody that could take action on right now? I know you mentioned a few, but what, what's your favorite? Your biggest bang for the buck would be rates. And I would say get a second opinion. Somebody who has a much bigger view of rates than you do. They have them benchmark it and see if there's an opportunity there. Most likely there is. And that's a good segue to that something trans solutions. Rates can be brought to you and, and analyzed, benchmarked, and you could weigh in on the contract. Yeah, it's like yourselves, we offer a free assessment. It takes us a week, two weeks, depending on the size of the account. We benchmark it. And one other thing to be familiar with is rates aren't just rates centered around the product and the profitability for UPS and FedEx. So you can't necessarily assume that because they have this spend or it's commercial versus residential or what have you, you can get this kind of money. It, ha- it has to go through the process and they have sophisticated models to price out your stuff. Uh, when you do the benchmark, make sure you're benchmarking against something that's similar to your freight profile. Not your industry. Now everybody wants to know, how am I going against my competitor? Oftentimes, parcel is very different. We negotiated the Adidas contract years ago, which was Reebok and Adidas at the time. We happened to have access to the Nike rates. When we benchmarked it, we didn't use Nike because Freight profile was very different. We got one that looked like the freight that Adidas had and Reebok had. And when you know that, there's your leverage. If they're giving it to another carrier, why can't they give it to you? Yeah, information is the leverage. Yeah, and what you do with it. Yeah, exactly. Where can people go to find out uh, more about you or the Trans Solutions Online? www.trans, T-R-A-N-S, hyphen solutions, don't forget the hyphen, dot com. And there's free material on there. We have case studies in there. And of course, things like the five things you carriers don't want you to know. And if you want to just chat with us, there's a link in there to talk with me or our vice president of consulting, Paul Brakeman. Feel free to do that. We'll take your meeting anytime. Awesome. I appreciate it. And thanks for taking this podcast as well. And we'll be sure to leave links into the the descriptions and into the podcast when we get it published for all of our listeners. Thanks again, Giles. This concludes another episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks, Jeff. You bet.